Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network. We continue to bring you conversations with experts in the field of sports, players, coaches, front office executives. Today is the broadcaster, uh, in my opinion, one of the best broadcasters slash journalists out there that covers the game of college basketball. Out of the Memphis, Tennessee area, none other than CBS Sports, Gary Parrish. Gary, how's life for you in Memphis? Life is good, relatively speaking. I mean, uh, living during a pandemic is not something I was properly prepared for, but all things considered, uh, we're doing well. We still have jobs. I know lots of Americans don't. We still um, have our health. I know lots of Americans don't. So anytime I start to uh, get frustrated by the circumstances, I remind myself uh, we still got it pretty good, fingers crossed. So um, uh, we're, we're holding it together as, as well as we can. Amen to, to that for myself and my family as well. You touched on the pandemic, and obviously the pandemic shut down uh, one of my huge passions in life, and I know it's the same of yours, and that's college basketball. Um, I had just gotten done finishing uh, broadcasting via the color analyst at the Mountain West Conference. I was looking, to, looking forward to, to doing the same for the Westwood One Sports Radio uh, Network for the Big Sky and then doing the NCAA Tournament before all the news came down that everything is shut down. What was your initial reaction and what were you planning on doing during the NCAA tournament with your coverage? I, I think I, like most Americans, didn't properly understand exactly what was happening. I, I believe I was asked maybe two weeks before everything shut down, uh, during a radio interview, somebody asked me, so do you think we're going to have an NCAA tournament? Do you think our kids are going to remain in school? And I was like, well, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I just didn't know. I mean, I, I was just as ignorant to, to, to what was going on as, as most people. And I like to consider myself like I'm pretty well read. Like I stay, I, I usually stay informed. And I don't know if it's just I couldn't imagine something like this happening, but I just, I did not envision it. So I can remember the week before everything shut down, we were in studio in New York, CBS Sports Network, and they had started, you know, saying, listen, you wash your hands a little uh, more often. Um, let's, uh, they were cleaning things a little more often, but that's the extent of it. We were still sitting shoulder to shoulder in the broadcast center. We still had just as many people at the desk. I was still waking up and going to the same breakfast spot that I go to every morning. It was still filled with people. So that's like literally the week before everything shuts down. So fast forward to uh, the next week. On that Sunday, I flew to Washington, D.C. because I was doing sideline on the CAA tournament. And on that Monday night, I was, you know, interviewing coaches and players post-game, putting a mic in their face, standing right next to them. We were operating normally. At that point, some schools had started putting in no handshake rules. Like, we're not going to shake hands after the game, but not everybody. And I can just tell you that after, uh, you know, I watched that semifinal game, there were players hugging, and it was pretty normal. Next morning is the Tuesday, I believe, March 10th. 
And that's when the Ivy League announced they're not going to have their tournament. They're not trying to do it without fans. They're just canceling the whole thing. And I remember people being like blown away by that. Like, what are they doing? Even Ivy League coaches were calling me and texting me, some of them, and saying, GP, you've got you've to get on this. You can't let them rip this opportunity away from our kids. Like, why can't we just play it without fans? This is not right. And my, that's when the light bulb went off of me because I said, listen, it's the Ivy League. Like these people who run these universities are like by definition brilliant. And it's what I, it's what I tweeted. It's what I told the coaches. I said, listen, I'm just going to assume if they are going to these, um, to these measures to, you know, in the spirit of safety that they have good reason to do what they're doing. And yet still the Ivy League was ripped from coast to coast by sports fans all day on that Tuesday. I then go to CAA championship game, uh, do sideline on it. It's very normal situation and wake up on Wednesday morning, fly home by Wednesday night. The NBA was shut down. Rudy Gobert tested positive by Thursday morning. Every conference tournament was shut down by Thursday afternoon. The NCAA tournament was canceled. And so it was a pretty remarkable few days. We went from, of course, we're going to have an NCAA tournament to the NCAA tournament is not happening in a matter of two, three days. And so, and, and I think it's reasonable to say our country has not been the same since and might not be the same uh, for, for a while. So it's just, again, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a week I'll never forget and a year I'd love to forget, but probably never won't. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the year 2020 has been something else. I mean, lots of negatives. Uh, and hopefully that individuals as well as the country can take these uh, difficulties that we've had and learn from them and make us all better when we can get back to as near of a normal as possible. And for you, a near normal is covering college basketball as it is for me during, during the winter months. How did you get into doing what you do, and that's being uh, one of the preeminent college basketball journalists and broadcasters? Well, um, I probably started like you in the sense that I was a, uh, a young athlete, except I wasn't great like you were. So I had no future in sports uh, actually playing them, but I still had a real passion for them. So I, you know, meantime, I was in like honors English classes and I had teachers who told me I had a talent for writing. I didn't know whether I did or not, but I had teachers say, oh, you, you really did well on this or, oh, you, you really did a nice job with that. And so I know this sounds oversimplistic, but it's, it's the honest to God truth. I said, listen, I love sports and people tell me I can write. Maybe I'll be a sports writer. It really was like that was my mindset. And then I went to college at the University of Memphis and I started doing everything I could do to be published and to um, be, uh, you know, try to be as relevant as you can be as a college journalist. And what's interesting is that, you know, I'm just a little older than you. So I graduated college in 99. And back then, um, the advice you got from advisors was, hey, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a newspaper reporter or do you want to be a television broadcaster or do you want to be a radio host? Because like, you're not going to be all three. Pick one. Because jobs like that didn't really exist back then. People who wrote in newspapers wrote in newspapers. People who were on radio were on radio. People who were on TV were on TV. And I said, well, I, I don't think I have a face for television. I've never even dabbled in radio. I guess I'm just going to be a writer. And so that's what I did. I never took a broadcasting class in college. 
never took a radio class in college, nothing, no TV, no radio. Um, obviously, fast forward to today, I'm, my primary job is television. My next primary job is radio. Writing is what I actually do uh, less than anything else. So the world's changed a lot. But um, and I can actually wrap this back to Gonzaga. While I was in college, I guess it was the 1998-99 season, so it was my senior year of college, the Zags came to the Pyramid to play Memphis. And I'm not lying. I grew up a college basketball fan. I don't think I'd ever heard of Gonzaga. I, and they came in and beat Memphis by 15. It's supposed to be a pretty good Memphis team. Just ran them off the court. And that coincides with, like, the beginning of Gonzaga basketball uh, becoming a thing. I can even remember, you know, because my first job out of college was at the Commercial Appeal newspaper in Memphis. And I, I was doing NCAA tournament capsule previews. And I was like, the Gonzaga Zags. I didn't know, like, and I, I remember getting an email from a Gonzaga fan. And they were like, we're not the Gonzaga Zags. We're the Gonzaga Bulldogs or we're the Zags. Get it right. I'm like, I don't know. I never heard of you guys before a year ago. So to actually, like, fast forward all these years, and now it's, like, one of the biggest brands in college basketball is a pretty amazing thing. But, um, you know, to go back to my career, I really, um, I, you know, my, my, I'm the first college graduate in my family. Uh, my mother worked in casinos, and my dad worked at a meat packaging plant. And I can remember, and they were awesome, but like they had those types of jobs. And I remember my dad, every time growing up, somebody would ask him, hey, how you doing? He'd say, I only got 28 more years till I retire, or I only got 18 more years to retire. He was like counting down his life. And I was like, that's such a, and I, he didn't mean it this way, but I was like, looking forward to retirement. And like, I understand why you might do it, but I feel like it's important to enjoy the other stuff too. So I wanted to try to find something I actually had a passion for that I would enjoy so that I didn't dread going to work. Because I know that my, my, my parents, they, like, they did their jobs because they did their jobs. And I'm sure they had fun moments in those jobs, but they didn't love their jobs. If you told them at any point, hey, you don't have to work anymore if you don't want to, they would have never gone back to work. And I'm honestly, like, I've created a situation where I'm not that at all. If I won the lottery tomorrow, I might work less, but I wouldn't stop doing my jobs. I really have a – I love doing what I do, and that was the key to everything at the start. Uh, can, can, is this something I'd love to do for, in theory, the rest of my life? Yes. Could you make a living doing it? Yes. All right, let's try this. And my aspirations when I got out of college were just to be a newspaper reporter. That's all I wanted. I didn't have these big – dreams uh, like I've far exceeded what what I thought was possible obviously very fortunate to do so and the idea that you know I was I'm a pub I, I grew up in Mississippi I'm in public schools and now that I you know in a normal basketball season spend half the week you know in a nice hotel in midtown Manhattan and then go to the CBS broadcast center to talk on national television like that's never that's never lost on me it's worked out better better than I thought it would better than I probably deserved well, I love that because you talk about having a passion for it and attacking your goals and dreams. And, and I know, you know, young kids that I coach in my basketball academy with clinics and camps, I, I talk about that all that time, you know, and I know a lot of those kids aren't going to be listening to our conversation, but it's so relevant, whatever it is, whether you're a businessman or a coach, if you find a passion, go for it. And that's exactly what you've done. You've carved out a, a heck of a career and it's awesome to hear kind of that path and that timeline, but also to touch on that GU Memphis game. Right. I was still at the University of Washington at that time. And yes, that was the year that Gonzaga made their breakthrough in the NCAA tournament. Richie Fromm was one of my best friends growing up. 
I think he had 37 that night. And that was – and this is something that if he ever hears this, he's going to kill me for it. But uh, not a lot of people know this, but Beale Street got to him badly <laughs> the night before. Oh, I, I, that's happened to many players, I'm, I'm certain. Um, like, but I remember Richie in that game. I remember – like, I don't remember Final Four games I was at. You know, like, I, I, I was courtside. I wrote about it. What do I remember about it? Not really anything. Like, I'd have to go back and look it up. I remember the Zags coming to the pyramid and just lighting Memphis up. And, you know, that, that, that was not on any Memphis fans' radar, that they might be at risk of getting blown out in this game. And obviously, you know, it's one of those deals where um, – it, Gonzaga probably knew that they were ready to go win that game, but nobody outside of Gonzaga knew that. And then, of course, Richie has uh, that game. And, again, that's to, – to go from – listen, that was November 98. Now we're in July 2020. So, basically, in a two-decade span, Gonzaga has gone from who is this to really one of the biggest brands in college basketball. Like, at some point – when you talk about quote unquote blue blood programs, it's important to update that list. And if you were to update that list, uh, I don't know how you could leave Gonzaga off of it. I mean, they never missed the NCAA tournament now recruited a high level, um, you know, been to a final four, been to a title game. As long as the guys who can come back decide to come back, I think should be preseason number one, you know, assuming we have a season like, you know, I know it didn't start with Mark, but Fuey really got that thing, you know, he, he took it to another level um, with the help of the administration. And now it is, it is rocking and rolling without exception every season. Yeah, you kind of foreshadowed the next question I had for you, and that's Blue Bloods uh, across college basketball. Uh, I know a lot of people uh, don't think Gonzaga is a Blue Blood. When I make the comment that they are, I get the, oh, well, that's because you're from Gonzaga kind of comment in back to me. But I truly firmly believe they're in the lines of the Kansas, Duke, Carolina, the Michigan State. Who would you be – Who? what programs are your top-tier blue bloods for somebody who follows it as closely as you have for so many years? Well, you know, from a historical perspective, you're talking about Kentucky. You're talking about UCLA. Uh, you're talking about Kansas. You're talking about North Carolina. But this would, I, I think, underline uh, you know, your point and my point, we agree on this, about Gonzaga being a blue blood. Like, Duke was not an awesome program in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. Like, that happened after Mike Krzyzewski got there. And, but everybody recognizes that Duke's a blue blood program now. Why? Because they've been consistently awesome for an extended period of time. Gonzaga's been consistently awesome for an extended period of time. It's been two decades. Like, I was in college when Gonzaga was, uh, you know, just getting rolling. And now I have a son who is getting ready to go to college. So, like, that's a pretty long time. And so, you know, UCLA is a historical blue blood. Has it been operating like one over the past 10 years? Not really. Um, but I still think it belongs on the list for the same reasons Indiana probably belongs on the list. Um, Michigan State, I know Tom Izzo actually thinks that they're not. Like he says, we're not there yet. But, you know, it's a big brand and a consistently great program. I would throw them on there. But absolutely, I'd put the Zags on the list. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, whether it was 2010 or 2020, and I assume 2030, it'll still be true. 
programs that operate at the top of the sport year after year after year, big brands everybody knows that can reasonably get games with basically anybody. Um, that to me is what a blue blood program is, and 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 Gonzaga is one of those. I mean, the idea that they can now get home and homes with North Carolina, like you know, that that's that's not something any, and and they are doing this, you know, from the West Coast Conference, which is not the ACC, it's not the Big Twelve. I mean, you really have to overcome a lot of inherent disadvantages to become what they've become, and yet, you know, by identifying the right coach, doing whatever you got to do to keep him and that administration investing in the program. Like, you know, sometimes people get into arguments about, well, is Gonzaga mid-major? No, no, Gonzaga charters every flight. You know, they stay in beautiful hotels. They can get uh, neutral court, big events. They can get other Blue Bloods to come to their place. They, in, they, they, they happen to be in a quote-unquote mid-major league, but they invest in their program like a high-major program. And that, combined with, you know, again, hiring the right guy, and keeping him, that's how it's become what it's become. Yeah, and you mentioned Gonzaga's uh, possible preseason number one next season if a couple guys come back. But you wrote a really good article on CBSSports.com that released a couple days ago. This Our conversation will probably be released, I'm guessing, the first week of August. You were talking about the start of next college basketball season and what that might look like. Maybe it bumps back to January. Maybe non-conference doesn't happen. And maybe these buy games that everybody doesn't fully understand unless you're entrenched in it uh, doesn't occur. What do you envision the college basketball season looking like? Granted that today is July 15th and we still have to figure out football. Right. Everything changes by the day. Uh, so I, I leave open the possibility for anything. But from talking to people who run college athletics and just like recognizing the world we live in right now, um, I, I think in the simplest terms, college basketball season will be delayed and shorter, um, fewer games. Um, I, I, I can't imagine we're going to watch the season start on the day it's supposed to start and then you know, Kentucky's going to be hosting Hartford inside Rupp Arena, you know, on November 13th. Like, it's just not going to happen. And the reason is because, as you point out, these buy games are built to be revenue generators. That's, that's why they exist. But, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, when you can't have fans, they're money losers. In other words, for people who, as you put it, aren't entrenched, I'll, I'll try to quickly explain what that is. Um, a school like Louisville, or most power conference programs build their non-conference schedule with quote unquote buy games. That's when you pay a school a certain amount of money. It could be $65,000, could be $130,000, anything in between. You pay them to come play you, period. That's the end of the deal. We're not going to your place to play. We're never, we're not, we're never promised to play you again. We're just going to play this one game. Then what they do is they take that game and it's part of their season ticket package. So then you sell your season ticket package to your fans. And that game on paper Cost just as much for fans to attend as a Louisville-Virginia game, a Louisville-Kentucky game, a Louisville-Duke game, a Louisville-North Carolina game. So it's an easy way to invest, to spend $100,000 and then make it part of your season ticket package and, and turn that $100,000 into millions of dollars based off you're selling it to 12,000 season ticket holders at, let's just say the average cost of a ticket is 30 bucks. 
you know, combine it with parking, combine it with concessions, like do the math on that. It adds up pretty quickly. So that's why Louisville last season played 11 non-conference games. Seven of them were these buy games. They're just trying to build a schedule to put as many fans in, Yum, in the Yum Center as often as possible. Well, now think about this world, the country we live in right now. We're not going to have fans at games anytime soon. It's certainly not going to have capacity, you know, filled to the top of the arena uh, games. So now you're spending $100,000 to get, uh, you know, uh, Austin P to come into your building, but you can't sell tickets to the game. So now you're just wasting $100,000 to play a game. It's a money loser as opposed to a money maker. So those games are going to get scrapped. Like they, they don't make any sense to play. Beyond that, as you know, many power conference coaches have told me, why are we going to spend all of the money to test, 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 test? We're testing every three days. We're testing day before a game. We're paying more money to get the results as quickly as possible. And then we're going to invite a team from the Summit League to come play our players. We don't know when they were tested. We don't know how often they've been tested. Like, it just seems counterproductive. So I, I think that's over. I don't think we're going to have non-league basketball games. I, I think what the high majors will try to do the Big Ten, Big 12, power conferences that have unlimited resources or, you know, lots of resources. I think they will actually try to play a conference-only schedule, and they'll try to play it while traveling. You know, Wisconsin will go to Michigan. Penn State will go to uh, Indiana. I think they'll try to do this because what the Big Ten will then do is put in a testing protocol and they will apply it consistently to all the members. So you're, you're, you must test this often. You must test day before a game. Anybody who tests positive, this is what you have to do with them. Everybody plays by the same rules. Everybody plays with a certain level of confidence. I'm not certain it'll work outside of a bubble. I'm just saying they can give it a try. The, lower con the, uh, the low majors and the mid-majors, they don't have the same type of money to test, 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 test. I talked to a low major coach this morning. And he said, we, we can't do that. It, like, we, we, like, the money is not there. It's too expensive, and we'd have to test too often. So we can't play probably traveling, and we can't play the high majors because they're not going to want to play us. So what this low major coach suggested to me, and it's certainly not a foolproof plan, and I'm not even sure it, it's a plan that, that, will, that they'll per, um, per, pursue – but it is, he's thinking outside of the, he's trying to think of a way to do this. Because as he said to me, we've got to stop pretending that everything's going to be okay in November. We just got to stop, go ahead and cancel non-league games now. And let's try to figure out how we can have a conference schedule at all levels of the sport and how we can have an NCAA tournament next March and early April. So what he said is the low major, he said his league, what they should do is most universities have already committed to sending students home after Thanksgiving because they don't want students going home all over the country, you know, getting the virus and then bringing it back to the campus. They just said, once you go home, you stay home. Semester's over Thanksgiving. What this low major coach suggested is that's when we should immediately convene on one campus. You know, whether it's my campus or somebody else's campus, let's all go to one campus because the campuses are empty. Let's qu test, quarantine, test again, create a pseudo bubble like the basketball tournament just did and let's play our conference schedule while students aren't there. Like we play through the Christmas break anyway every year. So let's play through this. And he basically said, set it up. We're all, all our league members are at the same campus. We're in a pseudo bubble. And, and now we're playing every other day. He said, let's play like nine games over an 18 day period. And then, 
cut it off, break. Then go back in late February, maybe play, his number was five, five more games that are similar circumstances, then have our conference tournament, and then get ready for the NCAA tournament, which he suggested should be played on in a bubble. Like if you have to put it on an island, like and he was being excessive, but like the NCAA actually does have the money to put 68 teams in a bubble because you are down to 16 in four days. You get rid of most of them very quickly. And, you know, the point he made is the NCAA can't afford to not have another NCAA tournament. So you spend whatever you got to spend, and it will be expensive, to create a pseudo bubble like the NBA is doing right now to conduct the NCAA tournament on television because that's literally worth billions of dollars. And so I know that's a long answer to a complicated question, but it, you know, I could just put it this way. I haven't talked to a single person at the administrative level or the coaching level who thinks the season's going to start on time and with normal non-conference games. Like the, the people who understand what's happening right now are trying to figure out a way to have conference schedules and eventually an NCAA tournament because that won't be ideal, but it'll be catastrophic for athletic departments if you don't get at least that. That's fascinating to hear that one coach's idea. And I think that's tremendous thinking outside of the box. Um, I hope it doesn't have to get to that point, but if it does, I love the fact that people are thinking early and creatively to find a way to at least have some semblance of a, the of a college basketball season for all levels. Yeah. That, that's what I told him because the point he made to me was like, you know, are we, it's July 15th. Back on March 15th, everybody just assumed, oh, we'll be fine by the time basketball season gets here. Well, it's, it's clear we're not. You know, conference commissioners are now starting to publicly acknowledge college football season is in real danger. So this coach's point was, it's March 15th. You know, March 15th, we thought we'd be fine. It's July 15th. Uh, we're actually, in some cases, worse. So let's stop pretending. Like, eventually, and news came out um, earlier this week from Dr. Anthony Fauci that suggests the, the first vaccine uh, you know, in the, that the United States is trialing right now. It, like, it's going well. Um, you know, who knows? But fingers crossed, but it's going well. So we might actually have that, you know, in January, February, March, April, May. We don't know. But until we have that, uh, all indications are we've got to figure out how to live and coexist with this virus and playing any sort of close contact sport like basketball or football in any sort of normal way is just not going to work. And so how can we take a shot at it maybe working? And I'm like you, I was real appreciative of this coach, you know, just, Hey, let's brainstorm. Maybe this idea is flawed, but at least I'm thinking because um, you know, if you wait another two months before you start trying to figure out what we're going to do, it's two months lost. Let's start trying to figure it out right now. Absolutely. I want to switch gears now and kind of look big picture college basketball stuff. And, and I, I love the sport. Uh, it's meant a lot to me. It, it's provided me experiences of player memories. And now I'm a, able to be a broadcaster and stay connected to the game and go to a lot of fascinating arenas and meet a lot of coaches and, and current players. But the G League, basically the minor leagues from the NBA, they're starting to try to get creative to quote unquote, I guess you could say poach some of the top recruits, the top incoming freshmen. What type of impact do you think the G League going after the highest level recruits is really going to make on college basketball? I, I do think it matters because like college basketball is more fun when you have Kevin Durant in school for a year, when you have Derek Rose in school for a year, when you have Michael Beasley in school for a year. So 
um, to not possibly not have those types of talents in college is not, you know, nobody could intelligently argue that's good for college basketball. But I do fall well short of it's devastating for college basketball because we did have an extended period of time from, you know, 1995 until, you know, the, the Kevin Durant, Greg Oden class where players were every year entering the NBA draft straight out of high school. You know, it started with Kevin Garnett, then there's Kobe Bryant, Amari Stoudemire, uh, Jermaine O'Neal, LeBron James. And though it would have been awesome to see those guys in college, if you go back and look at college basketball in that period of time, uh, attendance did not change at all. Television ratings did not change at all. In other words, I don't know that this is true for every sport, but in college basketball, it really is, and it's a bit of a cliche, a bit of a cliche but it doesn't make it less, you know, any less true. People do root for the name on the jersey. Like if you're a, a, a Kentucky fan, you're a Kentucky fan. Like whoever's playing for Kentucky, like you're, you're, you know, Rupp Arena is going to be filled no matter who's in there. And John Calipari has made the point. I think the phrase he used is we're always going to eat first. So like, you know, right now we'll get the, you know, you know, two of the best 10 players in the country, but if the best 10 players in the country don't play college basketball, we'll, we'll just get two of the next best 10. Like we're always going to enroll the best college basketball players. Same goes for Duke and, and, and a few other programs. And I think that's right. Um, you know, so I don't think it's devastating for college basketball, but it is, it, it's, it, it, it's, it'll be noticeable that, you know, there'll be a talent, um, uh, a drain of talent on the sport at, at the very top of the sport. You know, the best players might not be here. What I will say is that I don't completely understand it from the G League's perspective. Like, why is this a good business decision? Because I, I think initially the reason they wanted to create this program is wasn't necessarily to, to, to lure prospects away from college. They got tired of the best American prospects, some of them leaving the country. Like, they don't want to go to Australia to scout LaMelo Ball and R.J. Hampton. They don't want to go to China to, to, to see an American player. The motivation here, as I understand it, was let's keep the best American prospects in America. We'd love for them to go to college, but if they don't want to, let's give them something. Because the only reason they're, they're going to Australia is for the paycheck. They don't really want to leave high school and go to Australia for a year, even though it, I'm sure it's amazing on some level. They, they're just going for the money. So let's give them the money to stay here. And we'll also like create an incredible development program. We'll be able to get to know them better. So we'll have more information before we spend a draft pick and millions of dollars on them. So I get that. What I don't completely understand is then going after players who are ready to go to college because then you're pulling them out of a year of competitive basketball. I mean, you're, you're, a, you're a competitor. You know the, the, the um, advantages of competing as opposed to just working out. Um, you also eliminate, I think, the greatest thing college basketball does for the NBA, which is, you know, create um, well-known players to create superstars. Like if Kevin Durant entered the NBA straight out of high school, he'd just be a tall, skinny kid from the D.C. area after being the national player of the year at Texas, playing on national television twice a week, well, he's somebody you put on billboards immediately. He's a star from the jump. Zion, same thing. Like, Zion was famous on Instagram before he went to Duke. Zion became arguably one of the two or three or four most famous basketball 
players in the world because he was at Duke being awesome twice a week on national television. So you lose the free marketing that college basketball provides these elite prospects um, by taking them off television for a year, putting them in Southern California in a gym, just working out against each other. So I'm willing to wait and see how it goes. Um, but I don't, I, I don't understand the actual like if you weigh pros and cons like here's the good here's the bad I'm sort of on the in the camp of I think the bad outweighs the good but I'm willing to wait and let it let it play out last question Gary before I let you go I appreciate your time is you do a lot of traveling during during the the course of a basketball season and this has gone on for years do you have one favorite moment in following college basketball, whether it's a travel mishap, whether it's a game that you just walked out at afterwards and just shook your head and said, wow, that was amazing. Well, I, I remember a night in Spokane with you and Adam Morrison. And that was uh, that's a, that's a fun memory for me. Um, you know, that we, you know <laughs> we were, we were at, we, I was at Fuse house and then you showed up and, you know, we decided to go out. I think it was the night before a Gonzaga, Illinois game. Yeah. And uh, and then Adam comes out. And so that's just like that was a lot of fun because Adam, uh, you know, you're a former first team All-American. Adam was a, you know, a first team All-American. And, you know, you guys were, um, you know, like I said, you and I are around the same age. But like, you know, I remember watching you play and I, you know, I, Adam became on some level like a cultural icon because of the hair and the mustache and everything else. So that was just that was a really fun night out in Spokane. But I mean, geez, I've had so many ridiculous mishaps um, on, on the road, uh, lots of great times. I guess one stupid story is one time I was at Penn state. I was actually covered a football game and after the game, it was, you know, Pat 40 was there from SI Dana O'Neill was there from the athletic. We, they all worked. They both worked at different places then, but there was a group of quote unquote national writers. We're all friends. And after the game, we all decided because it was, you know, we had to write stories. So it was too late to go out the bars. And plus, like, you know, we're at the time we're all in our, you know, 30s or 40s. Don't really necessarily want to be out in college town bars. Um, we would be the oldest people there. So it was like, hey, let's just get a cooler beer, hang out in the room, tell stories, catch up. So we do that. And at some point, I've got to drive back to Philadelphia. So... I, I was cutting out of there pretty quickly. I was like, I'll come hang out for a minute, but like, I got I to gotta drive back to Philly tonight because I've got a you know, 8 a.m. flight. And I'd already booked a hotel in, in Philly to, to get there, crash for a few hours, and then go to the airport. So I'm there for maybe 30 minutes. And then I'm like, all right, I got to go. You guys have a good time. And I grab rental car keys that are sitting on a table. And I walk outside, click, 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 lights up. I jump inside, start driving to Philadelphia. I get about an hour, maybe, yeah, about an hour down the road. And uh, I notice there's a Diet Coke can sitting, you know, in the console, wherever. And I'm like, I, this, I didn't, I don't drink Diet Coke. What is, and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I had taken Pat Forty's rental car and I'm like on my way back to Philadelphia. So I call him, I'm like, yo, what kind of, cause our car, rental cars were similar. I'm like, all right, I'm coming back, Jesus. Come back, walk, drive an hour back to Penn State, go inside, wrap, uh, drop off those rental car keys, grab the other rental car keys that are actually mine, walk outside, click, 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 nothing. Can't find my car. <laughs> 
because it had been towed. And they will not uh, open the tow truck place until five in the morning. And I've got like an 8 a.m. flight in Philadelphia, which is, it's a long ways away. So we are sitting in, a, in Pat's rental car outside of a tow truck company at 4.59 in the morning, waiting for them to open up so I could get this car, then drive all the way back to Philadelphia on no sleep. So I made the flight, got home and crashed, but the night I accidentally stole Pat Forty's rental car and tried to drive it back to Philadelphia is, a, is an all-timer in sports riding uh, stories. That is tremendous. <laughs> I can only imagine the stress levels and the worry and just – uh, the sheer shaking of your head at oh. the moment of what you were facing right there. So just, just a self-inflicted nightmare. And I, I honestly got too many stories just like that. Well, that's awesome. And Gary, we appreciate your time. Thanks for joining the ISO with Dan Dickow and SB live sports. And I hope that we can be colleagues this next upcoming season, because there will be a college basketball season of some sort. So thanks again for joining Man, it's my pleasure. I was glad when you asked if I would uh, come on. It's always good to catch up with you. And, uh, yeah, fingers crossed we'll have a season in some form and both of us will be uh, talking into a microphone about the sport of basketball. ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.